Hi there, this is Kent Ramsey, a USH med student. Today I have two amazing students with me, as is always the case, uh, the amazing part. First, I've got Cheyenne Badman Wong <laughs> and Hope Lasso of Truth Menning here to talk to us about OCD and schizophrenia and the overlap between the two conditions. Um, we had a discussion earlier in the month about OCD and schizophrenia and the prevalence of the two. We talked about some of the challenges in trying to figure out exactly how often these overlap and we decided uh, in that podcast we wanted to talk a little bit more about something that is sometimes called schizo-obsessive disorder, right? So I think that's the direction of the podcast. Before we do that though, I'd like you guys to go ahead and introduce yourself. And who did we have the deep dive introduction on last time? That was on me, um, which this is Hope Menning, a third year student at Rocky Vista. Good to have you back again. And Cheyenne Badman <laughs> Wong. Hi, I'm Cheyenne Wong. I'm also a third year medical student with Rocky Vista. And uh, a little bit of introduction about myself. I'm interested in going into surgery. Uh, this rotation has been incredibly insightful and uh, it's really great to be here. It always worries me when students say it's been incredibly uh, uh, insightful. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of surgery? Uh, right now I haven't decided yet, but I am leaning towards trauma. So either ortho trauma or general trauma. Um, but I would, if I want to go into ortho, I'd like to specialize in spine. And I, th I think we can talk about this on the podcast. It looks like you are in the military. I am, yeah. I'm uh, in the Air Force currently. Kind of have to be smart to get into the Air Force. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck to you and thank you for serving the country. I, I appreciate that. Uh, we have a little bit of an outline that we wanted to try and, a couple of issues we wanted to try and tackle today. Um, they are just a quick review of the diagnosis of OCD. Hopefully enough that it kind of refreshes some of the important characteristics. Uh, second, differences between patients with schizophrenia and schizoobsessive disorder. We'll just call it that even though what we're really saying is schizophrenia and OCD. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about why OCD and psychosis might overlap. Some of the statistics about that, some of the numbers, a few of the studies. Uh, we'll talk about the genetics very briefly and then perhaps why it might be important to think about schizoobsessive uh, schizo disorder as a, why it might be important to think of it as a distinct entity. So um, I think my task is to start with something that I think Amanda was going to pick up initially and then we had the coronavirus hit our unit so we, we didn't invite her over. Um, but just generally speaking, I tend to think of uh, illnesses in the simplest way possible. So I try to distill it to the core aspects. And for me, uh, OCD is recurrent thoughts, urges, or images that lead to, to distress. And we attempt to suppress those. People have OCD attempt to suppress those recurrent thoughts that are distressful through some sort of suppressive action. And um, a compulsion is a physical or mental um, task that's done in response to those thoughts, images, and urges, but is in no way connected um, realistically, right? So, so you may say, well, um, I have this uh, image and the only way I can keep it out of my head is by clapping my hands twice. Um, one of the things that I thought was very interesting is there also needs to be a time uh, criteria. So my guess is that based on the way that most students talk about the shelf exam preparation and the shelf exam itself, time is a big factor, right? You have to have like the right number of symptoms in depression. That's one thing you're, everybody's aware of. Right? It has to be five. Right? Five. Very good. And with uh, schizophrenia, there are some important month markers like one month and six months, right? Yep. In OCD, probably one of the important markers is more than an hour a day. 
So if you have a test question that says more than an hour a day of these uh, behaviors, then start thinking about schizophrenia. So time consuming. Now there are a couple of interesting dimensions you might see show up on, on the test questions looking at OCD. Uh, sometimes symmetry. I sometimes ask patients if I'm assessing for OCD and I get maybe some, uh, well actually this would be maybe one of my screening types of questions. Is there ever a time when you um, have to adjust the pictures on your wall? Um, yes, no, I never worry about it, right? Those all give you different kinds of answers. And if somebody says yes, I say, well, how often do you have to do that? And if they say, uh, yeah, I, quite a bit. And then I think for me, the next question is something along the lines of, have you ever straightened the pictures or paintings in somebody else's house? <laughs> <laughs> and if I get a yes on that, I assume that that's kind of a, uh, a behavior that's really important to somebody, right? Um, sometimes you'll have forbidden thoughts that worry people quite a bit. You'll also have, uh, I had uh, some patients I worked with in the past who were quite convinced they had, would have harmed somebody. So they would sometimes drive around the block a couple of times to make sure they hadn't hit somebody with their vehicle. Um, some of those patients would only pull into a slot in a parking lot where they could pull right out from it. It wasn't an issue of ease. It was the fear of backing out and hitting somebody, right? Um, contamination, a couple of other kinds of things. A couple of other associated fe features that I thought were interesting, and, and I don't know how to uh, dis discuss these because these are things that you would normally think of other conditions, right? So it turns out that a fair number of people who have OCD might avoid places that um, stimulate those thoughts or urges or images. And so even though we think of avoidance behaviors in other anxiety spectrum disorders, you might see those in OCD. And you might also see panic symptoms in OCD. So just a quick rundown of OCD, and hopefully that was helpful. That came right out of the DSM-TR5, where I noticed that it was not part of the um, anxiety spectrum disorders, but part of the OCD spectrum disorders which I think included trichotillomania and hoarding. Hoarding, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so moving on. Um, there, seem to be, uh, there seems to be a lot of information, as we, we had, I think, six or eight articles that we read through. In addition to the articles that we read in terms of the prevalence, um, there's a lot of speculation about how these conditions might differ. Mm -hmm. Or, or what it might mean to have both conditions rather than just one condition. And I, I think when we read the prevalence articles, it seemed all over the place. And just as a reminder, we talked about a lot of different case series of patients, some were smaller, some were larger, where the focus was just kind of getting some of the initial data. What do these patients look like if they have both sets of symptoms, right? And um, I think I think with our focus on the literature that talked about, quote, schizo-obsessive disorder, um, I think we saw maybe some things that were just a little uh, clearer, maybe. And Hope, I think you were going to talk a little bit about some of those things that seem to show up in the literature on what the difference might be between patients with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder, or sorry, schizophrenia spectrum disorders and schizo-obsessive disorder. Yeah, so I actually had a comparative study, and it was um, comparing schizophrenia versus schizo-obsessive disorder specifically, so that was really helpful, and it found that um, patients with schizo-obsessive, or diagnosed with schizo-obsessive disorder were more likely to have paranoid symptoms and first-rank symptoms. And I actually didn't know what first-rank symptoms were right away, so we had to Google them with Dr. Roundy, and they are auditory hallucinations, thought broadcast, insertion and withdrawal, or somatic hallucinations and delusional perceptions. Um, so both groups were comparable with regard to the age of onset, total duration of illness, course of, course of schizophrenia, and number of hospitalizations. Um, it actually found that schizoobsessive patients were somewhat less disabled than um, schizophrenic patients were. So patients with schizophrenia? Yes. Patients, is, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and Cheyenne and I actually kind of talked about that yesterday, how it thought that these obsessive symptoms and compulsions might actually be protective of the course for patients that are diagnosed with schizophrenia. That's what my article found anyway. I don't think hers said that. So I want to uh, have you go back. What was the date on that article? Do you recall? 
the yeah the, when it was published. Um, um, two thousand three was when yeah. the Irev was published. And and I think um, there were a couple of things that you mentioned in there that I thought were fascinating. From from my perspective, you said generally speaking, there doesn't seem to be a lot of difference in outcomes for these patients. I felt like that was generally true. But I think there's one article that uh, we might talk about later that divides these patients out just a little bit more. And depending on whether you have OCD symptoms first and then schizophrenia symptoms or schizophrenia symptoms first then OCD symptoms, there might be some differences. But even that seems to be kind of variable. Um, did you have more you wanted to add with uh, with your article? Uh, yes, Hope? I have a couple more things. So, um, Do you mind if I actually speak on that real quick? Yeah, jump in. Yeah, so in the Han et al. 2013 article, I actually found that they, they stated um, they believe that mild OCS might actually be protective against uh, some of the symptoms of schizophrenia. However, they found that OCD had a negative effect on prognosis and had poor outcomes. So there is some uh, disconnect in some of the, the statistics or the, the, the data interpretations of some of the papers, but... Yeah, it was interesting because I think the way I read the Han article, and the Han article I thought was a really nicely done article. Are we going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute? Yes. If we are, I'll wait then. Yeah. Yeah, but, but we'll come back to that. And just to, the, the difficulty in these articles, because it does seem like they're all over the place, the way I read the Han article, just kind of speaking to that, is it seemed like they said that early OCS symptoms might be helpful, but then that's only at first episode, but then later maybe not helpful at all, right? right? So I think you talked about maybe differences in protection initially, but I, it, it's a complicated topic. So let's, let's keep going with other things from the Raj Kumar article, yes. or Raj Kumar. Mm -hmm. So um, the thing that they found actually was that patients had, um, that were diagnosed with the schizo-obsessive schizo disorder had higher depression scores more comorbid personality disorders, and they were generally more anxious as well. They had more anxiety disorders. So that was pretty common across the boards. But one thing that wasn't is that they found no difference in positive or negative symptoms whatsoever, so. I think that was pretty consistent among all the articles I saw that there was not a huge difference in positive and negative symptoms overall. There might be differences in kinds of the symptoms, but not in terms of positive and negative. So I think one of the articles I looked at suggested you might see more things like hoarding or some of the uh, body sensations associated with OCD where it felt like something was missing. So I, I thought that was very interesting that you might see subtle differences, but overall positive and negative generally didn't seem to be different. Yeah, and then another thing that I read was that um, there's more motor symptoms, and I think Cheyenne actually has an article about that, so she'll speak more about that. And, and to be specific, um, it seems like when they're talking about motor symptoms, it's talking about tardive dyskinesia and extraparameal symptoms showing up with medication use. So it seemed to be a sensitivity to antipsychotic medications. Was that the way you read what you were reading? Is that the way you saw that? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's go ahead and jump to this question of why my OCD and psychosis overlap. Yeah, so I actually have a few articles talking about that. Um, both are just involved in the frontal pathways. Um, they have a lot of the same neurotransmitters. And the neurobiological changes, there's volume changes in the basal ganglia and prefrontal cortex, and there's alterations in the dopaminergic neurotransmission. Um, so a lot of these pathways that are both present in patients who are diagnosed with schizophrenia and OCD, they kind of mix together a little bit. There seems to be, a, in terms of neurologic findings, I, my sense was that we didn't have really great data on what might be different exactly in these systems, but that we had maybe some imaging differences. And maybe a few, like, what was it, evoked potentials? I think there was a study looking at that. So there's some difference in functioning. There's some difference in brain volumes. The, the areas seem to overlap schizophrenia. But it's not like we have really great details past that was with the way I read it. Now, maybe that was what we read. But I didn't see, like, I, a lot of what I saw was like 
we think it's this stuff. Yeah. Did you see anything that said, we've got something here? No, it was pretty pretty basic where they're talking about the dopamine and serotonin pathways in the neural circuitry, so. I thought the neural circuitry with the, with the volumetric stuff was maybe the most compelling at the moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, anything else you wanted to add to that? Not really. That was a general thing I found in all the articles. I think the take-home story to that, and I don't know how much we'll get to this later, but I think the take-home story in that is that it might be that these uh, systems that show overlap, it might be this, like a OCD might be a symptom of the systemic um, variation from what we'd consider neurotypical maybe, right? So if you had uh, volumetric changes in, in these various areas and the function wasn't quite um, where it needed to be, you might see that the human body adapted by having obsessiveness or adapting by having psychosis. In fact, I, I think there was an article, and I don't think it's in this list, where it said something along the lines of, can obsessions drive you mad? Did you guys see that article? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And did you guys, is that one of the ones that you, either of you kind of broke down? I believe that was the one, uh, the overlap. D- Dale? Yep, that was, Dale. that was mine, and it wasn't, um, actually schizophrenia. It was OCD and just psychosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but I thought it was really fascinating. I, I, I was a little bit surprised by the title, Can Obsessions Drive You Mad? I think it went on past that, but um, I, I thought that the take-home from that, um, which is part of where you found these overlapping symptoms, was very, very interesting. So if you look at, and if I can find it in my notes. Um, yeah, I'm quoting right out of it. I have it written down um, from the article. It's been suggested that OCD and psychosis may not only cluster cross-sectionally, but influence each other longitudinally in terms of onset and prognosis. I really liked this article, so I'm going to tell just a little bit more about it. There were 264 people consecutively admitted to a hospital in the Netherlands. And I think this is a large uh, university hospital, if I understood correctly. 189 met criteria and gave consent of those 264. Three of those were re-diagnosed shortly after that. I I think substance-induced was uh, one one or two of those, maybe something else. Uh, Maybe affective induced, I, I can't remember for sure, but it didn't, or bipolar caused, right? So they only had bipolar disorder, they didn't have schizoaffective. So only bipolar with psychotic symptoms. I'm, I'm using air quotes because I think all of these are very difficult. So what they found at uh, assessment, and this is, if I remember correctly, a first episode in psychosis assessment. So this is the first time people are coming in for treatment after they've had their break. And it looked like that could have even lasted maybe a year before they made it into the hospital following their break. And roughly 83% of the pe- I'm sorry, 58% of the people were diagnosed with schizophrenia at the initial uh, set or the initial evaluation. 23% with schizoaffective and 20% with schizophrenia form, so less than six months and some obviously more than six months. Those numbers, as you can imagine, changed a fair amount between uh, admissions at the five-year mark. 83% had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and 12% with schizoaffective disorder at that point. And oddly enough, 5% still with schizophrenia form, or schizophreniform. And they thought that maybe their numbers changed in part in terms of OCD and that their percentages might be different in part due to some changes in criteria that they used internally, it looked like. Now, the interesting part of this, though, was that at admission, about 30% of the people that were diagnosed with a uh, schizophrenia spectrum disorder had obsessive-compulsive symptoms. And even though that dropped to about 22% over time, there seemed to be a lot of fluctuation. People who had symptoms at onset tended to have symptoms later on. Generally, you didn't have new symptoms show up. And, And there's kind of an interesting discussion out there, and we'll probably get to this later. I want you to remember this because we're also, I think, going to talk to talk a little bit about antipsychotic medications and this question that hangs out there and these oblique responses that are, or comments that get put into all these papers. In this case, there were about as many people that had OCD symptoms uh, that started antipsychotics as didn't start antipsychotic medications, right? 
And so that question about inducing OCD with medication wasn't so clear to me. Um, but then with OCD itself, that number stayed a little more consistent, maybe even increased, but not statistically significantly so. So um, 8%, I, I'm sorry, 11% at onset, 11.8%, I should say, and then down to about 7.3% at three year and 8.1% at five year. Uh, so what I said originally was between 7.3 and 8.1, and I forgot the first reading. So five-year study shows that those numbers stay fairly consistent. People that were diagnosed with OCD kept having OCD symptoms. People that had obsessive compulsive symptoms generally kept having those symptoms with some portion of people who dipped in and out of symptomatology based on the, the follow-up. There were a couple of things that they concluded from that study that I thought were um, uh, very fascinating. And, and they talked about recovery. So we've talked about differences in PANS. Um, I think there's some articles that say there might be slight differences in PANS, uh, but generally speaking, most of the articles said not a lot of difference. Um, but what they found is that there was also very little difference in recovery. So people who tended to get well, it didn't matter whether you had obsessive compulsive symptoms or not. Um, they did find that comorbidity at diagnosis suggested worse pre-morbid functioning, but not necessarily after functioning, right? And um, because the comorbid diagnosis at, at or co comorbidity at diagnosis didn't suggest post-morbid or post-onset uh, functioning, which I thought was very, very fascinating, or didn't predict illness course, I should say. Um, there was one thing that did stick out, and I'm not sure this came up in other studies, and that was that uh, patients with obsessive-compulsive symptoms, at least, and and I think we saw this more clearly with OCD symptoms in other places. They just didn't do as well socially in social interactions. They seem to struggle in those. Does that seem familiar with the things that you guys were reading? That seems about on par with everything I've read. Yeah. yeah. All right, so so I wanted to kind of dig into that. I think it's Dehan, D-E-H-A-N, because the D oh, was yeah. um, not capitalized. So I would like to add something from the mm -hmm. article. Um, I All the articles have talked about biological pathways and neurotransmitters, but this one actually talks about etiological influences, which is the first time I've seen it. And they said environmental risks, like pre- and perinatal stressful events, childhood trauma, um, being part of an ethnic minority, and use of cannabis and other drugs tend to be associated with OCD and psychosis. And another reason why it's kind of hard sometimes to distinguish the two is because they have that overlapping diagnostic criteria where obsessions and delusions are core symptoms of both OCD and psychosis. I was not aware that, the, I, I somehow missed that. That was for both OCD, the, you're talking about those risk factors played into both illnesses, Yes. not simply uh, schizophrenia. No, both. Really? Mm -hmm. huh. Which I've that. never seen them talk about etiological influences. It's always, you know, neurotransmitters, basal ganglia, so I found that interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think we've had other conversations on the, in the podcast where we've talked about risk factors for schizophrenia. I know that in the, the one presentation I do to the, my med medical students, I talk about those risk factors. I talk about uh, marijuana, I think, a little bit more specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had, I think, two podcasts now on marijuana and the, the risk associated with schizophrenia. And all of those things are big red flags for schizophrenia risk. But I've never, like I said, I've never seen those for OCD. That's kind of interesting. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, the Cedarloof Cedar uh, et al. 2015 article also came to the same conclusion that OCD is etiologically related to both uh, schizophrenia spectrum and bipolar disorders, uh, which is a great article to follow up the Dehan uh, article. I like that. Did you have more comments on that one? I think this is, did, you, did either of you have more on that one or do you want, because I have some more on that if, if we're on that article. We could, we could go on to that after we talk about Dehan a little bit okay. and some of the overlap stats. Um, and I, I think this does go a lot into, uh, you know, why we're talking about this in general is, is that most of the articles we've found have s seen that there's a significantly higher amount of OCD plus schizophrenia reported than we would expect by chance. So just to throw those stats out, somewhere around 1%, 0.8% is the number that usually shows up on the shelf exam for schizophrenia, 1.5 to 3% for OCD? I believe so. I think that's what we've seen, and yet? And yet, uh, in the 
Dehan article, it says that the proportion of patients with comorbid OCD varied between 7.3% and 11.8% during follow-up. And this article um, is specifically on the five-year course of uh, OCS and OCD in first episode schizophrenia and related disorders. Um, one of their biggest uh, limitations was that they wanted to longitudinally follow these patients. and. Cedarloff had a great article following that up, and they did a longitudinal cohort and multi-generational family study. They found that individuals with OCD had a 12-fold increased risk of having a comorbid diagnosis of schizophrenia and a 13-fold increased risk of bipolar disorder and schizoaffective disorder. So just to, to clarify this, the last article which was the DeHaan article, people with schizophrenia have this 12% uh, prevalence, I think, mm -hmm. of OCD, somewhere around 12 to 15%. I think those were the best numbers yes. we saw overall. A lot of range, but straight up 12 to 15% OCD. And if you flip the tables and say people who have OCD, again, somewhere around 12 to 15% of those people have schizophrenia, where the prevalence should be about one percent. One percent. About, yeah. Correct. And an in interesting thing as well that they found was that of the patients with first episode uh, schizophrenia, those reporting first episode schizophrenia, um, only about half the patients reported no OCS symptoms, so no obsessive compulsive symptoms, um, which is really high prevalence and makes you wonder. Yeah, why and again, that is. OCD. Full diagnosis, OCS, some of the symptoms, right? Correct. Yeah. One of the things I liked about the Cedar Loft article, now this is out of the Karolinska Institute, so very generally considered to be, a, from my perspective, a top uh, research institution. This isn't a small group of people they're looking at. They looked at the Swedish patient registry. 20,000 people with OCD, 60,000 people with schizophrenia, 50,000 people with bipolar disorder. 15,000 people with schizoaffective disorder. So these aren't small numbers. This is a large population study looking at these risks that seem to be associated with comorbidity. Um, one, other, one other study along those lines, there's something called the Nemesis study. Did you guys read the Van Dale? So yeah, this, this is the Van Dale article too. Just one other take home from the Van Dale um, is that the diagnosis of schizophrenia and OCS is about 11%, the diagnosis of schizophrenia and OCD is about 23%. So even though the, uh, the Cedarloff article suggests those numbers are a little bit lower, that's still in the ballpark, right? That's still a pretty significant uh, percentage of people. And I might have those mixed or flipped. I wonder if I do. Uh, I bet it's 11.5% OCD and 23% OCS. So still kind of within the range that we've looked at. High, high numbers for each illness with the other showing up. Yeah, and I think what Cedarloff was able to uh, address was the longitudinal aspect of developing one uh, diagnosis after another. And in their discussion, they talked about, uh, compared with unaffected individuals, patients first diagnosed with OCD were approximately three times more likely to develop schizophrenia and five times more likely to develop schizoaffective disorder at a later point in time. One of the things that is the holy grail of, maybe not the holy grail, I've heard it said that, so I copied that. Right? <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is important to the people that are treating first episode of, in psychosis is the idea that what if we can get to treatment even earlier? And so the, there are some things that have been developed for trying to identify um, what would be largely children, adolescents at very high risk for converting to schizophrenia. And it looks like maybe this OCD marker is one of those things that might be used for that. And I think that's a podcast we need to do in the future for any student that actually you know, is ahead of the game and listening to these podcasts. <laughs> You know, I think that's a perfect way to segue into why is having a distinct diagnosis for schizoobsessive disorder so important. Um, 
in the Cedarloff article, the discussion goes into how it, uh, their results are pointing towards how important it is for clinicians to be aware that OCD symptoms may sometimes constitute the initial manifestations of a psychotic syndrome um, and possibly vice versa. Well, before you go a lot further, I, I just want to stop and say this Poyarovsky article is actually, um, this is written by some of the big hitters in psychiatry. So even though I, I'm not as familiar with Poyarovsky's work outside of obsessive compulsive disorder and schizophrenia, because I think his name came up a couple of times last time, right? Uh, but Ira Glick and Rajiv Tandon are, uh, they are big hitters in the field. And when they're publishing papers that make the case that there should be a separate diagnostic category for this condition, that's kind of meaningful. So I just want to just want to say that while we're looking at this, talking about this article, it's coming from the perspective of some of the well-respected names in psychiatry are making the case for this separate diagnostic entity. Does that sound kind of like the way you read that? Yeah, okay. I completely agree. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, and, and the Poyarovsky article that we're talking about is, uh, was published in 2012 and titled Obsessive Compulsive Symptoms and Schizophrenia Implications for Future Psychiatric Classifications. And they go into their thoughts on why a distinct diagnosis of schizo-obsessive may be important. And one of the big things they talked about, and uh, they did admit that controlled studies are lacking, so this is uh, hypothesized. This hypothesized is expert or, opinion. Right? Exactly. Take, take that for the value it has. Uh, they talked about how... The general consensus is that schizo-obsessive patients are difficult to treat and differentially responsive to specific treatment interventions. So when we're treating patients that are diagnosed with schizophrenia and we are treating patients that are diagnosed with OCD, the difference in how we treat patients that are diagnosed with both may be really important to their prognosis or the betterment of their care. And they talked about uh, monotherapy with typical antipsychotics appears to be ineffective uh, and associated with increased sensitivity to extrapyramidal side effects, and how second-generation antipsychotics may be effective as monotherapy um, for both, but a comp combination with SSRIs is usually required. I want to back up on something I said just a moment ago. This is a well-referenced review article. My impression though is that sometimes the data on some of these treatment articles, we didn't get into that enough to know how well that was thought out, right? We are aware of case reports, we're aware of um, some examples of speculation of what might be helpful, but I'm not sure that I went back and looked at all the references for treatment, whereas I did look at some of the references for other items and, and some of the data on prevalence is it has some of the challenges that we that we saw when we read through this. So uh, I read the same thing about monotherapy, and uh, one of the things that wasn't as clear to me is whether that meant more than one antipsychotic medication, or if that just meant you need to have both an antidepressant like Luvox or Sertraline or Paxil, which have the OCD indications, uh, Luvox, which is fluvoxamine, Paxil, which is paroxetine, and Sertraline, which is Zoloft, um, that have those in combination with the antipsychotic medications like clozapine, like risperidone, like zoprazidone, and so forth, right? So that was something that wasn't as entirely clear to me. and and. It, it, yeah, the, the side effects uh, with motor movement, again, extrapyramidal extra side effects and tardive dyskinesia seems to happen a little bit more often. It's not, it doesn't seem like it's a 100% thing. I think what they're saying is you need to always be attentive to extrapyramidal side effects and maybe more so in patients with uh, this overlapping OCD and schizophrenia. Other things that you took home from this comparator article I think those were the big three items. But then they also, the way I read this, they said there's a few other things that might be worth mentioning. They seem to think that there was earlier, earlier onset for our patients have schizo 
obsessive disorder compared to just schizophrenia. There might be increased depression, there might be increased suicidality, there might be increased hospitalization. This is another article, this, they reference the decreased married, less likely to be working, decreased quality of life. They said increased PAN scores, I'm not entirely convinced by that. I think our data was more mixed in what we read. And um, they also said uh, maybe some change in executive functioning even though they, they referenced that earlier, it might be a little better and later it might be a little worse kind of thing that we talked about before. Yeah, and, and they did talk about uh, that exactly, uh, how some patients in a prior study had been shown to have a sort of protective uh, factor when having comorbid uh, diagnoses of OCD and schizophrenia. However, in later articles, it was that position was challenged, and um, there was some data suggesting that there was poor outcomes, poorer outcomes for patients with schizoobsessive. I tried to look up that article, and I, I didn't have access to it, so I was fascinated by kind of that. That seemed to be the pivot. There were two authors that they mentioned in this article specifically, and that seemed to be a pivot in the thinking. I did, I did think that one of the things that they pointed out, so when they were talking about um, this additional diagnosis, I think they answered one of the questions that I have some difficulties with, and that is, how would you know the difference between a command hallucination and OCD, right? And you guys are nodding. Do you, do you, <laughs> We, we talked about this before a little bit too, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, we, we did talk about this in our previous podcast a little bit, and um, we didn't have as enough time really to go over it. There was an article uh, by Kruger et al. 2000, and they, uh, they talked about how s- there, there might be a symptom progression and like kind of an overlap between the symptoms of OCD and schizophrenia and that's why it's so difficult for clinicians to sometimes differentiate whether patients might have a comorbid diagnosis. And for an example that they give, symptom progression of motor symptoms will range from tics found in OCD to grimacing and jerk, jerky movements seen in schizophrenia. Slow movements in OCD when exaggerated become parakinetic and rigid as seen in schizophrenia. And similarly, compulsions and circumstantial movements in OCD may progress into stereotype movements, rituals, and mannerisms. So there's a lot of overlap, and this was actually the big reason why we wanted to do this podcast and uh, discuss the potential of the schizo-obsessive classification, because this article by Kruger had talked about uh, the potential that comorbid OCD and schizophrenia may emerge as a schizophrenia subtype or a comorbid condition or the severe end of the OCD spectrum. So it's something it's one of those. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's tricky with the command hallucinations cuz command hallucinations can be very negative and they can be a patient does not want to do them and that's how obsessions are. They say they're ego dystonic. Whereas I think that's kind of hard to differentiate the two because they're both going against what the patient wants. But I guess delusions are easier because they're um, they're in or line. More believed. Yes, they're in line with what the patient wants. They're egocentric. So I, I guess you know what I, I so so I think you're in a sense pointing out the challenge that the. Uh, authors had in the Pyrovsky article. So they said if if you're going to have a diagnosis of schizo-obsessive disorder, you need to make sure that the OCD criteria are met independently. Check. That makes sense to us, I think, right? Especially in the context of a lot of people have obsessive-compulsive symptoms within schizophrenia. The second one, though, is exactly what kind of speaks to what you're saying. If interrelated OCD and psychosis the patient has to see the the compulsion as um, unreasonable, right? And and so we do have patients that have what I think are pretty clearly command hallucinations, voices telling them to do something, kill somebody, but they see that as very unreasonable, right? Mm-hmm. So 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's it, when when I read that initially, it, it all made sense to me. After listening to you, it makes no sense to me. <laughs> so hope, look what you've done. You've thrown the lasso of truth on those criteria, and I don't know that they mean as much to me as they did. Um, they also mentioned that it can't be related to like a medication, substance use, TBI, and they also point out that you have to have clearly that one hour of um, obsessive behavior mm-hmm. or compulsive behavior, right? Time, hour spent daily on. OCD, I should say, rather than trying to break that out. I thought it was a good article. I thought it was a nice review. I think they had an agenda that, as we've read through the literature, I'm not as convinced by all of their conclusions. I don't think it's as clear as they would say based on kind of the mixed data we read through. But I would be interested in your thoughts. I think the mixed data goes back to our previous podcast. And if you haven't watched that or listened to that yet, definitely give it a listen. In that, we talked about um, some of the reasons why there are differences in stats among all of these papers, and one of the biggest reasons being the uh, DSM hierarchy. So in previous uh, DSMs, specifically the DSM-3, there was a hierarchy that existed in which if you had one diagnosis, you couldn't have the other diagnoses. So uh, for example, being diagnosed with schizophrenia, meant that you could not be diagnosed with OCD. And then as they developed the DSMs, um, the DSM-4 and 5 now, they have uh, the ability for you to uh, have comorbid diagnoses. So in in that, that was one of the, the biggest reasons why we're seeing so, so much variability in some of the, the research, but um, also, Definitely give a listen to our previous podcast. I also thought it was probably because we have different populations in different areas, different genetics, mm-hmm. and the case series are quite often very small, so the conclusions that were drawn in maybe what's a very small case series might have the opposite outcome in another small case series, so chances rearing its head as we're looking for something that's meaningful. I, I have a question to pose for you. And here it says, obsessions are defined as recurrent and persistent thoughts, impulses or images that are experienced as intrusive and inappropriate. That sounds exactly like commune, or command hallucinations. That does sound a lot like command hallucinations. Um, it, so it does sound a lot like command hallucinations. Sorry, we had a knock at the door. Somebody who, who is uh, not yet familiar with the mics out, hold on a few minutes if you can wait. <laughs> I would say that that one of the challenges we have, and I'm I'm not entirely sure. Um, I'm not entirely sure that it matters to us in our treatment team if it's a voice or a thought, because if you ask a lot of patients, they hear very distinct they hear very distinct voices. Mm-hmm. Sometimes though, it feels like I have a tough time eliciting whether it's a voice or a thought and perhaps that's because I've been thinking about it as voices as opposed to maybe obsessive schizo obsessive disorder boy that that knock on the door really kind of threw me off for a minute didn't it so so I do think that more often when we're dealing with schizophrenia, you'll hear, if, if you talk to patients who have schizophrenia and you ask them about the nature of the voices, and I think you guys have done this a little bit, they will tell you that it's usually more than one voice. They will tell you the different kinds of names of those voices, whether they're male, whether they're female, whether they try to help the person out or not help the person out, whether they're mean or nice, right? You can get all sorts of characteristics and what they're saying. And so, when we're when we're dealing with CBT for psychosis, um, you can still check a voice the same way you would check a thought. So we we kind of just kind of say, well, these are things in your mind quite often, and it doesn't. We, we haven't necessarily worried as much about getting into the nitty gritty of a voice versus a thought, and and maybe that's something that if we were paying more attention, it would change what we're doing. It. Uh, maybe I'll talk Corey into listening to this podcast and seeing what his thoughts are when we're asking about when we're asking these kinds of questions and we're getting back uh, answers that seem more um, less defined, right? Less voice-like and more thought-like. 
I think a great example of that is one of our patients had talked about um, feeling compelled as if they were possessed by the voice to do things. And so if there's not a voice telling you to do it, is it a command hallucination or is it a compulsion from an OCS symptom? And in my mind, the way you describe that just barely, that's a lot like a first rank symptom that Schneider described, right? And yet you take away the voice part of that at all and it's suddenly something very different, isn't it? And if you have command hallucinations, but they're distressing, even if they're gone and you continuously think about them, does that, is that an obsession <laughs> now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> It does, it does make me wonder, and I, I think this is another podcast that I'm hoping will be picked up by the students, is what might we do differently in treatment for patients with uh, schizo-obsessive disorder that might help them have a better outcome? And, and not just what might we do to have them have a better outcome, but are we making sure that we're... Some of the patients that have obsessive dis, uh, symptoms are very obvious to see, right? Uh, you might see them stopping and having difficulty walk, walking over a threshold in the unit. But other patients might have obsessions and compulsions and anxiety that's not as easily identified. And it reminds me of something that I read a long time ago that our, pati our patients with uh, voices are quite often more affected negatively by the anxiety than they are the voices. And so it, it, in a lot of ways, it comes back to anxiety, right? And asking about it and knowing and treating it. So um, what else have we not talked about that we had planned to cover? I think we covered it all. Um, but that that's really interesting because it throws us back to the last podcast in which we talked about how uh, patients usually re go into the hospital or uh, seek um, uh, care for obsessions rather than the actual compulsions. Yeah, <laughs> the, the anxiety of it, yeah. <laughs> anxiety is, is really tough. When I was an outpatient psychiatrist before coming here, I felt like that anxiety was under-recognized. It was a lot easier to think about antidepressants, even though a lot of those um, SSRIs are anti-anxiolytics as much as they're antidepressants, right? Mm -hmm. And anti-OCD medications as much as they're anti-anxiolytics or antidepressants. So. Um, I did want to mention just very briefly that uh, there's not a lot of, uh, there are a number of genes associated with OCD. It looks like there are a number of genes associated with schizophrenia. I didn't find a lot of overlap. So what I, what I assume is that maybe something that a very wise psychiatrist from University of Texas in San Antonio once told me, he said, I, I asked him some question that probably was just dumb and meaningless to him. And, and he looked at me, I was like trying to figure out maybe some sort of receptor physiology, who knows. And he looked at me and he said something that kind of uh, has stuck with me. He said, what if depression is just a common final pathway? And really, all of these mechanisms, there's a lot of mechanisms to this kind of final common pathway. What if we're just treating a common final pathway and it's kind of luck whether you get it right or not? that the tools that have some rate of success have some rate of success because we're not treating one condition, right? We're not treating gram-negative bacteria that are very susceptible based on plate data to a specific antibiotic, right? We're, we're looking at a lot of illnesses and we're throwing penicillin at it, and penicillin doesn't work for everything, right? So, so that kind of affected me uh, quite a bit. And perhaps when we, when we look at these non-overlapping genes that seem to be present, and maybe some of the non-overlapping, even with the overlapping risk factors, the non-overlapping genes seem to lead to overlapping uh, neurological structures. And maybe what we're looking at with OCD and schizophrenia are simply common final pathways for some sort of um, neurologic changes that all funnel a certain way. Who knows? I thought it was a fascinating conversation. Like I said, it stuck with me. Yeah, factor analysis would be a great way for future research to go um, to try to figure out what a common pathway might be. So I think that's happening on some level with the uh, GWAS studies, right? And I think we talked about GWAS mm -hmm. studies. It seemed like one of your classes talked about it in the last three years and the other two have not. I can't remember if your class talked about genome-wide association studies very much or not. I don't think they did. 
If they did, I zoned it out. <laughs> I think it's yeah, very minimal. So maybe that's another podcast we should do at some point is how genome-wide association studies have informed uh, the genetics of, of schizophrenia and some of the other mental illnesses. I think we're just talking because we enjoyed the topic now and have like all these random thoughts bouncing around. Uh, my last uh, thought I, I essentially gave a few minutes ago, which is that I probably need to do a better job of assessing for obsessive and compulsive symptoms in all of my patients who have schizophrenia. And I need to think a little bit more about how often I'm using medication to treat anxiety uh, in schizophrenia. And obviously there are some medications that uh, are more approved and less approved, some that are used and misused, but definitely I need to be thinking about those two things a little bit more. Um, and, and maybe, just maybe, I need to think about the psychosocial rehab because I think we, we ran across, across a lot of articles that talked about the effectiveness of CBT and so forth in this population, right? So how we use those, those tools that we already know and maybe, maybe um, ensure that they're if necessary, tweak the right way to capture this population. So that's that's my take home. What is your take home? I'll, I'll be interested to see who jumps in first. Uh, my take home is is to just make sure that you uh, or me or future physicians and f physicians currently are thinking about uh, conditions that might also be making the management of someone's already diagnosed condition harder to treat. And that way, um, your patients are getting the, the best and most optimal care for their individualized needs. I like that. Think about the patient and all the factors that are coming to bear. Yeah, so I guess this topic with me going into family med, especially we've been talking about the hierarchy a lot. It just, as a family med doc, you sometimes get so focused. You're like, this is it, this is it. And you don't think about other comorbid stuff, so... I guess that's the overarching theme here is that multiple things can be present. Maybe maybe they're all just like you said, diverging into that final pathway. So I think it's important yeah. to keep an open mind and not be so It's either this or that. It yes. could be both. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think knowing prevalence helps with that. Right? Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that's probably one of the other parts of me thinking about that OCS overlap is the idea that Gosh, not, not just one in 30 or one in 60 of my patients have this ostensibly, but it's one out of 10. So at any given time on my unit, I of 30 patients, I probably have about three people that have fully comorbid OCD with schizophrenia based on the data we have of them being about equally as difficult to manage, generally. Um, and uh, maybe about 15 at any given time on my unit that I struggle with obsessive and compulsive symptoms so yeah great great take home on that note guys you've now completed one other podcast with me and uh, you know the sign off team out team, team out, out. <laughs>